On Wednesday, May 24th, Paramount Pictures invites you to have the adventure of your life. Dad! Oh, Dad! Ah! Keeping up with the Joneses. Are you crazy? Don't go between them! Go between them! Are you crazy? Harrison Ford. Sean Connery. You call this archaeology? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Rated PG-13. Starts Wednesday, May 24th at theaters everywhere. And with the hat is back. Joel Siegel of Good Morning America calls Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade more fun than ever. The excitement doesn't stop. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Rated PG-13. Now playing at theaters everywhere. Hello, friends, and welcome to the most glorious of events, the Movie Mavericks Podcast. This outstanding program is hosted by two fine gentlemen, Jason and Trevor. Now make it so... MovieMavericks.com. Hey now, everybody, welcome to a special episode of the Movie Mavericks Podcast. I'll send you over to Jason Rugard. I am Trevor Anderson, just so you know. Hey, <laughs> who cares? Because uh, Jason Rugard, he uh, is going to tell you what we're talking about today. We are talking about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. We're talking about the man with the bullwhip and the hat. Not Trevor, but Indiana Jones. Uh, Not me. Got a different kind, of, different kind of whip over there, right? Are you a lion tamer? I'm a tamer of some sort. That's my favorite line in Temple of Doom. What are you, some sort of lion tamer? Because Indiana Jones does have a ridiculous costume, but we'll get into that. But tonight's uh, topic of conversation is the third entry following our themes of 2023 of looking at the third entry in all these franchises. Tonight we're looking at the Indiana Jones franchise, and this was released in 1989. So the end of the official trilogy before we got kingdom of the crystal skulls and now just before we're getting dial of destiny so as we're speaking if you're listening to this in the future we have not seen part five yet i'm sure both of us will but as of this recording we have not seen it that's why we're not addressing it are they going to connect it to these <laughs> isn't there a time travel aspect i wonder if there's going to be do they have a cgi sean connery maybe Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> that's that's low this movie came out on Memorial Day weekend, and it made $37 million, $48 million budget, but $37 million on its opening weekend. This had the highest opening weekend on record at the time of its release, a record that would stand for just two weeks before Ghostbusters 2 came out yeah. and broke it, which itself was then broke the next week by Batman. So that ultimate box office record was broken three times in the span of four weeks in 1989. That's that something that summer. happened throughout the 70s and 80s and then kind of the 90s. It kind of stopped doing that so much. Hmm. Just in that quick of succession, you don't see that in yeah. memory at all. But it just shows well, not the show. Until, not until the late 2000s, right? And then certainly into the 2010s, we had quite a few. Shows the volume of people that were attending the cinema in the summer of 1989. And I think that this was probably top three summers uh, in my lifetime of movies just from what they were offering. I mean, there was everything on the billboard that year. Just the movies we mentioned there. Mm -hmm. You can throw in Nightmare on Elm Street movie. You can throw all these kind of look who's talking, Parenthood. There's all these other sleepers that are mixed in there too. And just a a slew of movies came out in 1989. Even The Bomb, which is probably the worst Star Trek movie, but I still kind of like it. Star Trek 5. Yeah, Final Frontier. All right, well, let's get into this. Let's break this down. Uh, this is obviously directed by Steven Spielberg, story by George Lucas and Menno Mejas, who also was a writer on Empire of the Sun, Color Purple, uh, all the kind of the artsy stuff, amazing stories that Spielberg was doing at the time. But Jeffrey Bohm is really credited with the script yep. here. And the script in this movie, I think, is at times its biggest asset, but at times, I think, is undercooked. 
And I was surprised when we went back and looked at this, how dull I found this movie to be. Because when I was a kid, this was my favorite Indiana Jones movie. Was this your favorite? Yeah, I definitely like this. This had a lot more comedy. I really like Sean Connery as this. And so I agree with you. This was duller than I remember it. But no more... uh, Well, first of all, this feels like a James Bond movie in in some aspects. But no more duller than anything from that era, I guess I should say. You know, when you think of like older James Bond movies, especially Sean Connery James Bonds, they can be a little dull nowadays. I guess when I was a kid, I really responded to a, it was it was new, and I saw exactly. it in the theater. What was the first it to? Yeah. Indiana Jones movie I saw in the theater. But as I get older, my tastes lean towards the quick pacing and that brutal efficiency of Temple of Doom. I, that one has yeah. really grown on me over the years. And plus, as gentle as The Last Crusade is, it, it's it's counterbalanced to like, the mean-spiritedness of Temple of Doom. You can see there was a clear agenda to go back towards the, the light with this one and not so close to being, you know, the Temple of Doom right. scared kids. It scared me as a kid. I'm sure, it, you know, the parts that were kind of intense for you too, I'm sure, as well. Oh, yeah. I, oh, yes, of course. Obviously, I remember the heart scene. I mean, yeah, you're right. Uh, Temple of Doom uh, made them uh, rethink the third movie here. And so we got this. But I think for, for good measure, you know. And when you look at the the, uh, the amount of work they put in on the script, you know, how many rewrites and where this started from and where it ended up, this is a great script. And keeping it simple and, and even dull to, to perhaps nowadays standards, it is a little long. You could cut a little bit out of this and it'd be a lot better. But it was the right way to go, I think. I think that the Holy Grail is an excellent MacGuffin for the series. Yes. It's even better than the Lost Ark. It's it's absolutely the right choice in what they're going for here. Father and son, you know, aspects of that being kind of the real movie is being that. And then the, the Holy Grail, as you, as you call it, the MacGuffin, you know, being the thing that, that they're kind of forces them to go on that journey together. And the pairing of Connery... And Harrison Ford, which is a masterstroke, in my opinion, of casting. Yes. yes. It's a brilliant move. And it's the saving grace to me of, it's the reason the movie exists. Because if you don't have that casted right, this movie fails. It totally fails. And I don't know many other actors you could have put in that role. I mean, truly, because the James Bond connection, like you had mentioned earlier, is so evident. I mean, it's influenced by, in a lot of ways, that having mm -hmm. James Bond in it... Oh, God, the boat race? Come on. There's a lot of action sequences in this. There's Spielberg action sequences, but don't tell me these are not heavily James Bond influences. 100%. I mean, even the structure of this, which uh, we can talk about here. But, you know, as we did watch this, I I don't want to be so negative. I do have to say that I did forget how much I enjoyed some of the small touches, like the map that shows Mm -hmm. the travel... Um, the joke about X marks the spot, uh, things like that. You know, the the little Indiana of Jones. Course. I remember all of. It. I remember when he they think he falls off the cliff and dies. I remember that when I was a kid, and uh, everyone thought that was funny, and it still played well. Did you see this in a theater when you were younger, or how did you come across this one? No, I saw so I saw this on uh, on home video. I and was of course 10. we had all these. When this came out. So I I was young. I saw this in a theater. Right, I would have been nine. It was overwhelming to see this in a theater. And I remember 
I mean, I saw it with my aunt and her boyfriend at the time. And my aunt is such a good audience member. She would cackle at the jokes. I mean, she had a great laugh and it was loud yeah. and fun. So any movie that, so she, I remember her just laughing in this and it seemed like everyone really Which enjoyed so all the adults. It, yeah, it really it was a good audience that saw this. And <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember the goodwill that the audience had towards this movie. You could just kind of feel it coming off the screen during mm-hmm. that initial theatrical experience. It's something that I carried with me. So I always felt warm towards this movie, uh, which is why I was a little bit surprised when I was watching it. For that first hour, I felt uh, bogged down a little bit. But I, I still want to talk about the peripherals before we start breaking down the stories, if that's okay with you here. Um, for you, when you think of the first three, what is the one you want or has the most rewatchability to you? The one that you, you typically will pull out and rewatch. The one that I've watched the-, the most would be this one. Really? Is that because of the age of when it came out? It was the newest? Um, I think it's just the easiest to watch. Um, the other two, I don't know. They're different. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I remember all of them. I mean, really, we, I just watch all of them. But this is the one that I watched the most. I think really I just liked um, the simpleness of this one. This one felt the most real out of all of them, if that makes sense. Like. Like I could be this, this Indiana Jones could be me because this felt somewhat realistic. And we all have daddy issues. So it fucking, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's very relatable and, you know, feeling ignored by your father, wanting his attention, um, wanting him to know you're an intellectual equal, all that kind of stuff. I think that this movie speaks to a a certain uh, generation of of men too in in wanting father's approvals and needs. And that's to me the the strongest, like I said, the aspect of this is is that pairing between the two. And their chemistry is so good, Ford and Connery in this, that you you buy them instantly as father-son. Even when there's some odd moments, like the fact that they both hooked up with the same girl, even though that's a- even though that's a nice... I love that he's like, let's just not talk about it. Don't say that. It didn't happen. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's fucking funny, right? That's still that place today. Come on. It does. And it's a nice film noir touch with the femme fatale who has slept with both the father and the son to gain information from both of them, has tricked them both, um, and they both fell for it. And the father's still kind of giving the son a little shit about it, and the, fa- and the son's <laughs> giving the father some shit about it. So I do think that's a very successful aspect of it. But this movie just didn't have, or the script doesn't have that same thrill-a-minute story and the pace of Doom. And I, like I said, I thought I got kind of, I don't want to say dull, because that first 15 minutes is its own movie. And oh, then yeah. for 25 minutes after that, it gets a little bogged down in exposition, and it all culminates with that game of chicken, that, that boat chase in the Venice Canals, and that game of chicken with the propeller. And I think that that sequence to me is the lamest set piece in the whole movie because it ends with that sequence with the propeller that clearly was shot on a soundstage. I mean, it looks, you can see the water. I just felt like that was the most underwhelming aspect of the movie to me, that, that out of all the chases and all the action pieces. I mean, did, did you find that underwhelming when you rewatched this? I mean, this? not really. I didn't. No. I no, I, I like that. Um, I thought that was very James Bondish, actually. And yeah, it looks bad, but there's a lot of special effects in this that don't look good. So I don't know that I would hold that against it as far as the age. I just saw. I just saw. I don't know. I did the, the spell wore off on me during that sequence, and um, sure. it, it showed some seams. But I mean, I, I will forgive it for being forty years old or whatever it is now, thirty something years old. Uh, where do you think Eliza 
was it what's her name elsa schneider the the heroine who (laughs) turns into the where do you think she ranks amongst the three ladies the two ladies that come before her marion ravenwood i don't even rank her at all because i don't even think she's really she's not like she's not like them she's not actually not a good guy you can call her a heroine i think that's um nice of you she's not good she's a bad person the whole movie Uh, so yeah i just i don't include her in in any of that i I just don't think like indiana jones could never end up with her it just couldn't (laughs) it never never happen i'm just saying it wouldn't though would it no well she's clearly to some degree maybe because they like but she's like the worst part of him right like he definitely has that um that drive and selfishness where you know everything has to be in a museum uh, which is a weird thing to have, but hey, that's his thing. And so he tries to get it, but she also has a selfishness where she wants to get the grail too, but just, you know, to have. You know, who knows what she wants to do with it? Well, I think, first of all, his his whole obsession with everything has to be in a museum is because if not, he would just be a simple grave robber. So they make him not a thief <laughs> at that point because he's doing it for this noble purpose. Is of course, how, right, yes. Seen that. I mean, no, um, you're right about that, sure, but I'm just saying that they wouldn't have wound up together because they couldn't have. Like, It would have been so uninteresting. I don't know. What would they have done? She would have wanted to go steal more things. Or actually, I don't even know what... There's no way in hell they could have even left with the grail, right? No one could have the grail. Like, no one can use any of the other stuff that they found. No one could really use it, right? Like the Ark of the Covenant. Well, who's going to use it? What are you going to use it for? You can't really use that. But the grail, like, if could you imagine if someone had the the grail, like... Like shit. Although I don't even know if it would work without the, the water from the place. You know, oh, you got still, the whole rules that down. Worked. I'm just saying. You know, if it worked outside of there and you could take it and go have everlasting life and give that to whoever you want and everything, that'd be huge, right? So there's no way they could ever leave with it. I, I mean, it's like such a MacGuffin, like I said, and it's such a good well, idea exactly because for this movie and for the search for, for the Holy reasons, Grail. Yeah. And the idea that the father-son in the passage of time and the encroaching end of life and, and all that, you know, it's just that it's a, it's a master touch in, in terms of concept. And I'm surprised they didn't get it to it sooner, to be honest with you. Yeah, um, and they, there's a little Da Vinci Code stuff in there, too, just for fun. <laughs> the indie series has always begun with a prologue sequence, just like James Bond did, which right. was its inspiration. And to me, this is arguably the best of the bunch. I mean, it's so good. They made a TV mm-hmm. series called the young Indiana Jones that ran yeah. for, you know, a couple of years. I think they had about 20 episodes ultimately, but, um, which is available now on Disney plus two as well. Uh, but did you, do you love the opening of this or, or oh, is it just it's me? fucking defining. It defines the character. Yes. Yeah. I loved it. I thought that's maybe that's one of the other reasons I love this so much. Cause I won't, who didn't want to be Indiana Jones, but the opening to this movie, um, tells you who Indiana Jones is without even really, it doesn't really create a character. And it. it just gives you that backstory of everything, you know, and even down to the fact it tells you how he got the freaking scar on his chin. And it's kind of cool. Cause it plays into the whole whip shit that he's got going. It tells you where he's got the look from, it tells you everything. And in this movie, of course, tells you where he got the name from, which is a play on other real life things. And I guess most of this was real life stuff that they kind of worked into the script. They had to deal with all these, you know, the Lucas guys and, Spielberg and this group of people. Um, I, of course, I didn't know that when I was a kid, but <laughs> knowing that now makes it even cooler. Yeah, I mean, you, I have notes written here, and you hit 
literally all my bullet points of why the elements in that beginning are because let's be honest the, it's inconsequential what he's after to the story everything i mean that opening it's it's 15 minutes and it could be considered unnecessary because the treasure like i said that he's after is inconsequential and the payoff to that sequence is just an exploding boat that doesn't really do anything but the elements within like you said he can't stand by and watch these guys ra- rob graves. He has a sense of justice, snakes, right? All of it. Yeah, yeah the, the scar on the chin, like you said, the Why whip, he's the, of snakes. how he receives yeah. the hat. I mean, uh, the distant relationship with his disinterested yet demanding father, which pays off in the second act. All mm-hmm. of that is so beautifully said. That economy of storytelling it, within that sequence and the way it's done, while it's set up on a train and the motion of it and, and just the how it picks up momentum as it goes along i love that opening 15 minutes it's the it's the second best thing of this movie to me outside of the the relationship between connery and ford so i'm glad we're in agreement on that (laughs) because even as a kid i thought that was just so awesome and and if we're being honest here i never thought that the tv show ever matched anything that that first 15 minutes did it it didn't yeah not not in terms of fun tv show so i wouldn't i the almost didn't necessarily expect it to but yeah but a great idea, nonetheless. Well, you don't have Sp- I mean, that's what Spielberg brings to the table, though. That that whole sequence is like, holy shit. You know, it's directed fantastically, right? It's just one long action sequence. And it grabs young kids. And it's telling I mean, you all those things. That plays to the children in the audience and nostalgia for the adults who probably were in Boy Scouts in the 50s and that kind of... So it's, it's a double hitter because it's our entry point as little kids into a movie that has some fairly... Uh, major themes i mean this is this is some you know with the christ and the blood of the christ and all that kind of stuff so this is a a fairly heavy complex themed movie and that is such a good way to get kids into the movie as it begins to me yeah um a couple things i noticed here the opening shot with the boy scout troop on horseback as they Mm -hmm. ride through monument valley it's just a thing of beauty. It's shot so perfectly, and yeah, it's a direct homage to the John Ford Westerns on top of it. It, it just it sets a certain um, epicness right off the bat to this movie that mm-hmm. just by photographing from a long shot, you know, these kids, we look like cowboys, but they're just Boy Scouts. And um, if you've seen The Fablemans with that last sequence with John Ford, yeah, right, you know, I, I just know. started thinking about it as I watched this. I know, too. I thought the same thing when I was watching. I was like, geez, <laughs> they're all going to die. No. You know, um, <clears throat> my problem, yeah. though, is right after that sequence ends, it kind of goes into this Raiders of the Lost Ark beat-for-beat ripoff where he's in class, Marcus comes to greet him. Yeah. They do this. And, and what kind of a shitty professor but is that's he? that's Indiana Jones. Why are all of his students in his office? They clearly didn't understand the lesson. I don't know. They all yeah. need his help on them. And he just What was them. the lesson? Did you see it? I mean, I was like, Jesus, this guy's a fucking horrible professor. <laughs> yeah, he says, I'll be in my office for these office hours. Literally, all of the students are in there because they're in a panic. And he just cuts out on them. He just leaves. I know. He sneaks out. It's, it's kind of fucked up. Yeah. Um, but to me, the movie really picks up momentum when they go to the castle, the double cross happens, Sean Connery's character is introduced with the scene where he breaks the vase over his son's head. Do you think... Junior. Junior's head? Isn't that a great way to introduce that character because of the miscommunication that they're having where... 
Indiana thinks that he's being sentimental about, oh, I'm, I, I can't believe I did this. I'll never forgive myself. But he's really and talking about the face. face. Yeah. And it's, it's humorous, of but it says, it's already telling you about how their relationship is, what the mm -hmm. characters are interested in. Um, I think that that is part of when I look at overall scripting of this movie, that's the kind of stuff where I go, okay, this is where the professionalism, the craftsmanship of the screenwriting is coming in because yeah. that set up that relationship once again, perfectly reminding you of how he's being treated by the father. Uh, yeah. I mean, without a doubt, that's, that's kind of why I like the movie so much. You know, I think it's funny. I think Sean Connery is funny in it. The delivery is, is great. And that happens throughout the entire movie, you know, until to some degree, begrudgingly, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, they basically, you know, they love each other. <laughs> when it comes right? down to it, yeah. It just is what it is, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I, I agree that it's a very manly movie, you know, in that aspect of it. It really does show father and son as men, you know, being men, dealing with um, uh, those types of father-son issues, you know. But, but in a way that, as, as you say is uh makes sense like he's searching for his father's approval and so when he feels like maybe he might be getting a little bit of it but the dad's still you know more interested in other things and um, i love their differing mm -hmm. views on how things can be done particularly paid off with the sequence on the beach mm -hmm. when the dad uses the umbrella to get the birds up in the sky right. and bring down the, the fighter planes that's a great sequence um, and it counterbalances the violence that indiana jones used in the the big blimp, you know, the Hindenburg right. to get everybody off of that with the no paper <laughs> sequence, which is a great sequence and has a fun payoff to it. Yeah. He didn't have his ticket. Yeah. No ticket. <laughs> <laughs> and as I watched this, I forgot how good of an actor, how mad, how much magnetism a young Harrison Ford had, not even a young, I mean, cause he was fairly old at this time. Doesn't it? Yeah. He wasn't that old. I mean, th that, to me is kind of what ruins these the last one and even this one they're going to make now is that it's just like you know i remember indiana jones him and his dad like his dad's dead now and he's like is his dad older but there's no where's the young indiana jones now oh, there isn't one really i mean they tried it but that didn't pan out so it kind of feels like i don't really you know i don't really know this indiana jones it just it's too late you know they shouldn't have have waited that long. I feel like they should have made these last two in the fucking nineties. I always say this, I, these actors rallied against never doing these roles again. Stallone did it. Schwarzenegger did it. Bruce Willis did it, you know, and then ultimately they yeah. come back to these roles and you know, some of them come back sooner rather than later and you get Terminator three and then some of them wait too long and you get crystal skulls. So it's just, it's a timing thing, but ultimately I'm agreeing with you. I wish they would have come back sooner and made these. But then again, yeah. why are these so hard to script? Because just even these last couple, they had scripters, different people take drafts that are well, you know, M. Night did a draft, Frank Darabont uh, well, did a, a draft. Of, a lot of movies are like that, though. It's just unbelievable, to though. To be fair. They can't crack these stories. It's very hard for them to crack an Indiana Jones story, uh, in my opinion, at least. And they haven't successfully done it since this one. So we'll see how this next yeah. one, because I mean, where do you like, what's your ranking? Let's do some rankings here. Where do you rank the Indiana Jones movies? Give me your ultimate ranking of the uh, four that I are in existing. Well, I will, I will say, uh, three, two, one, four. Um, 
but begrudgingly. I, I really think that the trilogy is is great on its own. You should watch all of them. I agree. And having said that, I'll grade mine because I do the the entire first trilogy is is tits. So I go two, three, one, four as well. And I only put Raiders that low yeah. because. It it was the hardest to get through as a kid. It was the slowest moving as a kid. I think it still is. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. But it's a great movie. That's the thing. It's hard about. It's hard to rank great movies, you know, because it's like I don't know. You're you're just comparing little details, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, and especially with that series. But we can all say that Crystal Skulls was. A major disappointment when it came out, even though it was financially successful. But well, we you, all can't say that. Have you watched it recently? No, but you know what? I have seen so now this fourth one comes out. I've seen so many people who now claim that that is not the worst one. And I think and it's not because they saw the fifth one. And I often wonder which one do they think is worse. <laughs> Yeah, I've rewatched. And it happens more than you think. I put on Crystal Skulls the other night after we watched this, mm-hmm. and I got about forty-five minutes into it. It moved a little bit better than I recalled it. I, I wasn't so mm-hmm. mad at it. That was in the era when we were first getting a lot of these reboots and, and revisits, and I remember it's being just, just more ridiculous than the other ones. It is ridiculous. Yeah. Some of the gags What's are ridiculous. More ridiculous. The, the, these are, movies are all ridiculous. They're all over the top. But that movie is well. If you read what this movie sh- could have been, or what a lot of movies could have been, um, they toned them down a lot. You know, and that movie feels like they didn't tone it down. They were just like, well, we can do all of it, so let's just do all of it. I also don't think it's that not good. I think that a little bit of sci-fi works for these movies. A little bit of mythology. But when we're getting into aliens, well, I mythology think is the key thing, that's not a little, sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit uh, out of the, out of what Indiana Jones is is working in. I, I think that you're merging worlds that don't gel all yeah, that well. Yeah, because now you're saying everything's true. Yeah, everything's true. God's true, and aliens, and everything, everything else you want to be like. It's just like, well, where does it end? Indiana Jones and what? Jurassic Park? They can just be the same thing now because. Why not dinosaurs? I don't like, where does it fucking end? What well, doesn't end at that point? Like it's too, too much. It's just too much, you know? And I liked about these, or at least the first trilogy anyways, for as ridiculous as they were, um, they were things out of reach. You know, like, uh, like, like mummy type stuff, you know, like, like you can imagine there'd be like a, a mummy's curse or, or mm-hmm. the mummy would walk around stuff, but it was, it was local, right? It was like localized or something. So you like, you could imagine it being true, but you would never see it. You know, whereas like the last, and that was the same with all of these, he had to go on an expedition and then do all this stuff. But in like the last one, it felt like it got too big. Like you, you would, you would kind of might see like if an alien ship like went up and stuff, I don't know, it's like too much, you know? Yeah. The world would be notified of what was happening at that point, no matter when it was ha- going on at, and I just thought that the 1950s setting was a little too modern. And so I'm curious how they're going to do that now with this 1960s setting that they have made on the fifth one, even though, like I said, there's a time we'll travel aspect. So we'll see um, sight to be seen. So we'll hold our judgment on that. Yeah. 
Uh, Best score, though, right? I mean, these these movies have fantastic scores. This one particularly, too. I mean, the score yeah. to this, like little moments, like I said in the beginning, when that hat, the boat explodes and the hat floats in the river, that is such uh-huh. a beautiful music cue. It's dark, it's ominous, and then it it fades into this shot, uh, a dolly, sh- or I'm sorry, a crane shot where it comes down at the college through the trees, and it's so light and airy. And Williams does that, so, John Williams does that so quickly. And even when a movie's dog shit, like Last Jedi or Crystal Skulls, the score is still fantastic by Williams. I mean, he never, yeah. he never just uh, you know, sandbags it or calls it in. Yeah, I know. And it's so great to see, or to hear, I should say, uh, something that is thematic, you know, as far as music goes. And, and distinctly thematic, right? Like, you're not, it's not like... Um, you know, like we've had nowadays, everything has its its own sound, so to speak, and everything, but uh, everything's very moody, you know, today. And this was like, this is fucking Indiana Jones, you know? Like, you can sing this song, people will be like, oh, it's Indiana Jones. In three you know, notes. I, I dare you to try to do that nowadays, yeah. In three notes, you know exactly what this is and what that represents, because it's so iconic. But I agree with you, scores today are either bombastic or so underwhelming that they're just not memorable in this there's so many cues in this i mean i watched like a lot of this with my headphones and and it was like surround sound with the the score and the sound effects and the sound the sound effect of the punch in this is there any other <laughs> film franchise where they make a punch sound that adventurous <laughs> i mean cool yeah. like, i can't how do you explain it you know yeah swashbuckling i guess would be the best way to say it it's just uh, it just sounds like a hit, you know. <laughs> but it sounds so impactful in the I know, yeah. It's all I me mean, obviously ILM doing a lot of work on this. This was as throwaway as these are. These movies and when I say these movies, the first 3 Indiana Jones and to some extent the fourth are better made than all of the James Bond movies pre-2006. So, even though they're ripping off Bond in a lot of ways, the craftspeople on these Indiana Jones movies are the best in the world mm-hmm. from the director to the writers to the you know the, the set designers to the score all that and bond has people that are very good in the stunt department or the production design but to get every department firing is is a thing of beauty and that really pays off in this third one where every shot is everything in it you just see money it's production design it's on location well, you get that with spielberg i think really <clears throat> Um, more than anything else, but also Lucas, you know, Lucas producing and Spielberg directing. Yeah. In the eighties, they're, they're going to work it out. This is the height of their powers that uh, I guess maybe the beginning of the end of their, their reign, because yeah. in the nineties, you know, you have the independent well, movement no, um, and you have the Tarantinos and no, the Kevin please. Smiths that come out. Those guys, no, they don't compare to, to any of this stuff. I mean, Tarantino eventually converted to this type of stuff. So, and the other guys are where, Where's Kevin Smith? You know, hey, where's uh, what's his name out there in, uh, um, you know, uh, Texas? Uh, Linkletter? Uh, doing his own shit now. Fuck him. Um, he, he's he never was anywhere. Um, Rodriguez, uh, Rodriguez. You know, these guys are nowhere, right? I mean, even Rodriguez has a new fucking movie out. No one's talked about that shit ever. Um, you know, those guys went nowhere. The, the independent thing died quickly, and yet here's still Spielberg doing his thing. I agree. But my argument, though, is so, that mm. for a while, this was the end of the G golly wonder kind of at, at, at cool cinema. What I'm saying is in the Jurassic 90s, Park. in the and 90s, things Park, got cool. Right, so. 
things got really cool and you became too cool for school and yeah by the by the end of it you have the matrix you're right yeah i I just think that the attitudes changed and people had wide-eyed wonderment still when this movie came out and the summer of 89 is is the beginning of the end of that i I would say even 1991 with t2 with its brutal violence and you know it's i would say jurassic park i mean jurassic park and toy story there are are two good ones as well they came out of the same group it's the same stuff and those still um, played and we're still wide-eye wonderman i think yeah that's fair you know but you're right by the end of the 90s you're right that was totally gone and even spielberg had even stopped spielberg making very dark yeah stuff. with saving private ryan was almost yeah, and, and, I mean, um, very and, uh, dark movies. schindler's list and all that stuff yeah 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 he started going to the adult team uh theme type stuff yeah, no you're right you're right about that shit yeah which is too bad because i um yeah good times you know good times and the guy ironically <laughs> that was trying to keep it alive was George Lucas, but he was doing it totally wrong. He was doing it with the Phantom Menace, yeah, in a CG mm-hmm. with too much CGI and digital stuff. <coughs> excuse me, which was ahead of its time. But at the, the at the same time, he his storytelling was like from the past, but his technique was from the future, and that didn't merge together at all, in, in my opinion. Those two yeah. things, <laughs> which is a problem that Kingdom Skulls has as well, because of this overabundance of CGI and uh, modern technique. All right, so let's. Uh, yeah, you said there were some other versions of this script. Do you have some inside information on uh, what this could have been or anything like that? Is that what you said? Were you reading um, some? Oh, I don't. I mean, they. I mean, I think originally this was supposed to be like a haunted mansion type idea. That was <laughs> the, the the first pitch by Lucas. Um, and there were a lot of. I mean, there were full on completely other scripts, right? They were written for this, which which were vastly different. Had nothing to do with the the Grail. Had um, other um, items that they were after. Um, didn't necessarily have the dad in it so much. Um, and we're just more start, like didn't have the beginning, right? Just had just very standard, what, what sounds to me like very standard Indiana Jones types movies until you got to, uh, to, you know, um, Christopher Columbus taking a pass at this. And then as you say, um, you wind up with, uh, uh what's his face? Jeffrey Bowen. <laughs> um, Jeffrey Bowen. Yeah. Um, uh, taking a couple of passes as well and you wind up with what we have today so it's it's crazy to look at this and to think oh wow like this could have been 800 different fucking types of movies um but that's kind of like a, um that's how movies should be made you know so to speak you know you should especially if you want to make the third in a series right and and again you shouldn't have had the idea when you started making the first movie what the third movie was going to be because you shouldn't be making fucking trilogies. I agree. Um, but if you want to make a third movie like this, then yeah, it should go through like, like the James Bond movies, I'm sure go through like this and, and you get bad movies, you know, mission impossible movies. sounds like they get developed like this. A lot of Tom Cruise stuff, um, like this, you had, um, uh, what was his other series? The, um, Jack Reacher, uh, the, the Jack Reacher one. Yeah. And he, he had the second one of that, which sucked. And I think it's too bad that, that they should make a third one because I think the third one would probably be good. Um, but that's just well, that's just what happens. You, know, you get some misfires in franchises like this, but it makes for the good ones to be even better. You know, when you know, um, when you're experienced enough to know, no, this is not the script. Don't green like this. Let's keep working. You know, yes. that's when that, that's the right thing to do. And this it's not what they do today. 
Um, in fact, today they just greenlight shit and they just rewrite it as they're doing it. Um, if you, anyone's paying attention to what Disney and and Warner Brothers is doing right now, it's kind of gross. You know, it's just disgusting to just make a movie to make a movie. And I agree with you 100% when you say don't just jump on the first story you hear or that has you know the biggest potential. They massaged this until they found an idea that was worth telling. That's the most important part. It wasn't just we're going to do this whether we find something or not. And that's when you get, uh, you know, a mummy part three. That's in my opinion, you know, that's, that's that stretched out, but they didn't plan for that to be a trilogy. Thank you. And I'm I'm happy for that. So when you do get to that third Mm -hmm. story, you know, you're, you're pulling at strings that never necessarily are there and threads that you're trying to hope are created by insinuating things and taking a chance on things, you know, and and wind up making a bad movie. That, That is what it is, but that's, that's not what's happening today. You know, like they're not taking a chance on something. They know they're going to be making 800 fucking of these movies movies and they're just going to shit them out and i think out of the, all the threes that we've watched this year uh, certainly more than ninja three but even more than uh, <laughs> uh tokyo drift or batman <laughs> right. forever um or any of the other part threes that we've watched this year i think that this is the most successful third entry that we've seen thus far and i have a feeling it might be the most yeah. successful third entry that we see this year because it's, it's rare. Well, I don't know. We got that Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which I like quite a bit. Yeah, that is a good one. Um, you know, we, I think we have some other thirds up up for grabs. But I think you're you're right about as far as, like, it's Spielberg. Like, I just, I, I don't think there's a match for the artistry of Spielberg. There really isn't. And I don't know if you ever have, anyone out there has seen the YouTube page, the YouTube channel, Every Frame a Painting. But he does these really interesting breakdowns. I think I sent you one recently on Bayham and Michael Bay's style. But he did one on the Spielberg Warner and how many uh, long one-shots there are in Spielberg movies that do not draw attention to themselves. Yeah, you don't notice. Particularly in Jaws and Minority Report, they zero in on. And these are long, complicated shots shots that have brutally efficient staging in it and really timed mm-hmm. uh, masterfully that happens so gracefully that you don't even recognize it's happening so it's so much work is ha- going into pleasing an audience and t- efficiently telling a story which is Spielberg's I think master touch is that he can move the camera without drawing your eye to it. And it's not a flashy move. Even in sequences in, in Last Crusade I was watching and the camera, the slight camera movement here, push back mm-hmm. over here, pull back over here. Uh, it was just little touches. Yeah, the camera is used to tell the story and it, it goes where it, exactly where it needs to go. The blocking and the, and the framing is always perfect on his side. Minority Report is a fantastic movie to watch for that um, because the blocking and framing in that movie for some for um, the vast majority of it are fucking amazing and it's not even that good of a script it's not that good of a movie Mm -mm. Uh, but having him and Tom Cruise in it and it's fucking off the charts and that just just tells you a lot of what um, of the the amount of work I guess some people put into something you know in casting. It's not a work that other people don't, you know. <laughs> casting is directing and directing is casting too. And and Spielberg here has got not only the best players in Ford and Connery, but getting River Phoenix as the young Indiana Jones was a, a great mm-hmm. move there. But this movie is also aided, I think greatly aided, by the introduction or the reintroduction of Sala and Marcus Brody. 
I, th- I love those yeah. two characters in this movie and the way that they make this odd foursome with the father and they're all friendly and the father knows Marcus too and their buddies mm-hmm. and I, I just I love that th- this movie didn't have to create seven movies to give me a multiverse and all this kind of interconnected shit just with the simple writing and the acting right. you can tell that these people have a history with one another that they are referencing things that I don't need to know every detail <laughs> yeah. about you know I mean, nowadays we'd get a fucking Marcus Brody fucking movie. We'd you have know? three of them I, when just he was like, young. Uh, it's be insane. Yeah, well, why, you don't need... Like, the Indiana Jones universe is Indiana Jones and the people that he comes into contact with. That's the universe. And you're right, this movie feels... It feels like a universe. Like the, I mean, we talked about the the uh, opening scene, but, uh, I mean, basically what we're saying, what we like so much about that is that it's world-building. Yeah, it builds the and it's not just the whole world. It builds the character. This is it's Indiana Jones. So the world is Indiana Jones, you know, and it builds that whole thing up in that in that sequence. And um, and it just pays off in spades specifically because you already know the other two movies. So you already know Indiana Jones. Yeah, it didn't take a movie of a beginning prequel movie. They did it in 15 minutes at a prologue, which they do in Casino Royale as well with James Bond and Daniel Craig. I mean, not not as a. not as in detail with all the scars and things like that, but it, it, in terms of telling you his backstory quickly and getting the show going, which I really appreciate about the movie because it does want to get to that last half. And I think the last hour of this movie is where it really excels and where it becomes the heartfelt movie that it wants to be. It, you know, the, it, the fun part is always getting mm-hmm. to the end, right, with the Nazis and the trials. You know, all these trials that he has to overcome all the tests that he has to overcome. Uh, that to me is the best part of the movie. Well, there were, that's true. <clears throat> there were also, um, before this, they had the dad die. Yeah. Which doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> it makes a lot more sense when they all write off at the end of that movie. Uh, when they, you know, write off into the sunset, so to speak, Great. you feel good. Don't yeah. you? Don't you feel good about yourself? You just feel like you've been on a hell of an adventure with all your friends. It was pretty funny. Everyone loves each other. Run right off into the distance. We went on this great adventure, you know. Uh, we we're able to do this. We escaped barely. You know, we almost died, um, but we made it. You know, everyone. We all made it. You know, it, it definitely is one of those kinds of movies, and I do miss that that camaraderie stuff. And you kind of felt that again with the Marvel stuff and with some of the superhero stuff. Um, but at the same time, um, it, you know, it shouldn't take that. I why aren't we making these movies nowadays? I, I just it's like a a lost art to some degree. Like I, I want a feel good movie action adventure movie again, you know? And you're right about that last shot when they all, when Sean Connery puts on the headband and rides off on the horse mm-hmm. and the sun smirks and then Marcus goes after it. It just, all of that plays, they leave the frame perfectly. And I know in the, the ending of oceans 11, this is a strange jump or comparison, but the ending of oceans <laughs> 11, when they all leave the fountain at the Bellagio's, Right. timed wishes it had that kind of impact to watch these four men right off into the sunset with that beautiful John Williams score over it just gives you hope you, that's the kind of shit where you would leave the theater on a high and you'd want to go back to see yeah. movies again because you didn't feel cheated or bummed out and everybody comes out smiling and the people in line would see you smiling and go oh shit this movie must be pretty good you know, we're waiting for the next showing and, and things like that it just well, isn't isn't that what top, the last Top Gun did 100%, as well? I agree with you. Yes, a hundred percent. You know, I mean, I just I miss that type of stuff. Like everything's so down nowadays. Still, even if it's even when it's up, it's still down. Like 
oh, I'm just done with it. Like, like, give me, let me go on an adventure. Take me on an adventure, and uh, and and live me up. Even though the Avatar, like the last Avatar movie, wasn't didn't really quite do that. It was still, um, it was too serious, and it was ridiculous. There's giant blue people, aliens on another planet. Why is it so serious? I will say that even um, something like The Flash, which I saw recently and we'll talk about in depth on Mm -hmm. our other podcasts, but those are the kind of movies that will beat you into submission. So even if they end on a light note or a laugh, you've become pummeled by two and a half hours of of sound effect, of visual noise, of absolute uh, narrative confusion. So you've been pummeled into submission and you walk out dizzied, and hmm. and off kiltered, that's how I feel at least. And they're you know yeah. the the bad direction and editing. You're just you don't know where to that's, look on the screen. It's it's bizarre. No, that's so interesting because every all the action sequences on this, I this is a movie. Maybe it's why we just like these types of movies so much. But it feels like you could be that person, you know. And even going back to like Die Hard, like that was a good thing about Die Hard was that you could you felt like you could be McLean in that, you know. You felt like you could be that character and that person, and and you kind of went along with them. And that like these action sequences in this movie aren't so big that I can't follow them. Uh, and I know when they're in danger. I know when they're, um, you know, when they're safe when they get out. There's a joke. There's this. There's that. You know, I feel like I could do that, and it would be a lot of fun. Whereas if you watch like. Uh, you say The Flash, I haven't seen it, but I can imagine the Justice League movies and things. I, I can't imagine being in those fights, you know? I just couldn't imagine, like, like Batman versus Superman, that whole that whole fight sequence. I just, it's not, like, after a while, as you say, it's just noise. Even the Avengers, even if it's artfully done, and it's, it, it stops the narrative, and they're jumping from building to building and crumbling rooftops and, all, you know, all these billions of dollars of destruction. It's it just, you said nobody... These movies didn't have yeah. that. I know they couldn't afford the CGI or the scale. Well, Iron wasn't Man there, had that though. Y- yeah, it's true. And that movie, you know, that was one of the f- yeah. the things that I loved about that Iron Man, and what probably you know made Marvel such a successful, I guess, start off is that you felt like you could be Iron Man, didn't you? Yeah, did you feel like you could be in that suit to some degree? And, and stuff? he was I fallible. Did, when I saw that movie, because he was fallible yes. too. He was a fuck up. But everything was to, but everything was done uh, to the character. Like the character was was doing all these things. They were experiencing this. You were going along with them. Whereas nowadays, like as you say, I don't think the characters may have time to experience it. They just jump here, there. They just, it's like you're watching someone go through the motions. It's just not like I don't know. It just doesn't work uh, so well. Yeah, I think that when you watch these, even that boat sequence in Venice that I didn't um, care for, it's efficiently staged. You know where you're at. There are shots in it that match, and it's not just edited to confusion in with a shaky cam uh, or whip pans and, and things like that where your eye doesn't know where to focus. Spielberg clearly directs your eye at all times, which is what makes him one of the best storytellers to ever live mm-hmm. in this medium. Uh, did you ever like the Romancing the Stone or Jewel of the Nile, the knockoffs of these? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, me too. I always I liked all of was them. kind of surprised at how Firewalker. successful Firewalker's terrible, but <laughs> it is a knockoff. I know. I tried to watch and I couldn't get through it, but you know what? I don't like it now. I'll, I'll honestly, just be honest, I did not make it through my, my rewatch of Firewalker, which and I usually make it through everything, even if it's bad. Couldn't do it. When I was a kid, I fucking loved Firewalker. So I. I watched that movie tens of times, you know, a lot. So, yeah. Saw that in a theater. 
on Thanksgiving in 87, I want to say, or 86. Yeah, and much for the same reason. I love those movies because of Indiana Jones, though. Yeah, they, that, that was the gold standard, obviously, was always getting this. And there's a bunch of uh, rip-offs of this that are uh, countless rip-offs of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Um, Italian ones, uh, Filipino ones, uh, all over the world they've, they've made these. And none of them have ever really been successful because they didn't have... Harrison Ford, who just was on such a career peak. I mean, if you look at the, his list of movies that he did after this, he did this movie. He does Presumed Innocent. He does Patriot Games, The Fugitive, Clear and Present Danger, Air Force One. These are fucking huge movies. Yeah. Maybe the biggest movie star in the world during those years. Arguably. I mean, I'm trying to think of somebody up else. there with Schwarzenegger, with Tom Cruise, with Tom you know, Hanks, Schwarzenegger, Tom Cruise, and all of them. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he he was for sure up there with them, but um, yeah, for sure. And those would have been about the time point. At the end of the '90s, you'd seen a steady decline. Yeah, you saw at the end of the '90s. I think we got Six Days, Seven Nights. We got Six Days, Seven Nights. What you had lies Random beneath. Hearts in there. Random um, Hearts. What lies beneath? Yes, Random yeah. Hearts. I forgot about that one. Um, and then you know, in the last. Decaders. I think the last one that I saw in the theater of his that wasn't an Indiana Jones movie was Firewall. Remember that one? Oh god, that was that's old. That was like two thousand five, two thousand six, somewhere in there. Um, he's done other ones. Yeah, remember Hollywood Homicide? Oh, that was terrible. Yeah, God, he had he had a slew in the two thousands of just terrible. What was the movies. one he did with Brendan Fraser where they were doctors? Desperate measures. No, desperate measures um, is uh, no, 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 with no. Andy Garcia. It wasn't desperate measures. That was the Andy Garcia one. Extreme oh measures. no, I do no, know what it is. Extreme measures. Extreme. No, that's the one with uh, Gene Hackman and Hugh Grant. It, fuck. Oh. Uh, uh, okay, I have to look this, this up now. F- no, it is something like that. Though. Right. Extra measure. Going the extra mile. No. I don't remember what it is. It is something. I swear to God. I know you're like right. That. We're right I'm, there. I've lost my mind. I know, right? There's still this is in the Mandela um, effect. No extraordinary measures. Extraordinary, extraordinary, extreme measures is the Hugh Grant. Extraordinary one. measures. Yes. Okay. There you go. That's where we. That's where we got wrong Oof, though. That was, yeah. that was a, a fucking mid walk to the nineties. Something like that, and man. And then what was the terrible one um, he did where he was the morning news anchor with Rachel McAdams? Morning Glory. Morning Glory. That one sucked too. I actually, yeah, I know. I half liked that one though. Um, but that's not his movie. Yeah, he, that's a Rachel McAdams movie. He's just in it. Yeah, I mean that's the difference between a movie like that and a movie like Sabrina, I mean, where he was clearly Cowboys the star. And aliens, where, where are you going after yeah, this? Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to avoid that one. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, past two thousand five, um, it, it gets a little choppy in there. It, oh, bro, we're in the twenty tens at this point. <laughs> what we're talking about? Yeah, let's let's, let's jump back a um, little bit. Let's see. Yeah, Hollywood Hall is like okay, nineteen. What? <laughs> Could, K-19, the Widowmaker. Oh, I forgot about the Widow. I thought you literally you meant one sure of those is. movies with Jim Belushi and the dog. <laughs> like K-9, K-19. K-9 movies. <laughs> those are good. I love those movies. Come on, Top Dog. What, where are you else you know, going with that? You want liked, some more dog movies? Uh, I actually liked the Widowmaker. I, I did like the Widowmaker. Uh, I, I, didn't, oh I didn't hate it. Um, Crossing Over was terrible. It ain't great. That w- wasn't very good. <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't very good. I know. Um, Ender's he game. I forgot he was Ender's there. game. It, it, the, the sad fact is that Crystal Skull may be the best Harrison Ford movies in the two thousands. <laughs> oh fuck! <laughs> <laughs> That's a mic drop right there. Yeah, you might be right there. As I look through this list, I think you're right. Hollywood Homicide has to be the biggest 
bomb on on the list. I don't even understand how that fucking movie. I, I first of all, yeah, I do. I know. I own that fucking movie. I want to watch that again because that's that's one of those movies where I look at it and I'm like, this is a prop, right? This isn't a real fucking movie. This is like a fake fucking movie. <laughs> I just remember when that movie was being made, all the problems that they were having on it, and the fact that the stars couldn't get along, the fact that the director was being bullied. It has Josh Hartnett. It, it just it doesn't feel like a real movie. It feels like a fake movie. Even the, the trailers were terrible. They had still to they, this day. They, they advertised oh, it with yes. 50 Cent's fucking in the club song. It, it, it was advertised way too young for what it was. It was awful. Awful. I just remember his earring was was pretty prominent and throughout the whole movie. And in Six Days, Seven he was Nights. Very, he was very earring. Um, yeah, Six Days, Seven Nights, too. I know. I still don't understand. He's still... Where's that earring? I guess I, if you look at it, Air Force One I was the last time he had a big hit. Everything after that really went downhill. Oh, yeah. Everything after that was done. Wow. He had a couple bombs here and there regarding Henry and things like that but very rarely that's a good movie though I mean um, at least like it's watchable I mean What Lies Beneath is terrible I hated that movie uh, yeah that is a terrible but regarding Henry has a great performance by him at least like um, at least you can say that for a lot of the movies that he did in late 80s early 90s like that where they maybe they weren't um, the big action movies or, or big summer movies, the, but he at least was acting in them. Yeah, always. And even when they were big summer movies like The Fugitive, he gives a great yes. performance in The Fugitive. Clear and Present Danger. I love that movie. Um, Patriot Games. Th- those are fucking great. I was in fact going to bring up to you, does Clear and Present Danger qualify as the third entry in the Jack Ryan series if we put it up for yes, consideration? It does. Okay, great. I didn't know what the rules were. I'm glad the committee has spoken. And you think that it... He's playing Jack Ryan in it. But I it's mean, his second term. Um, I mean, even though it's a Jack Ryan... No, it's just... You know, how do we, how do we count that? Right. Because you know, he only did two. But it's the third Jack Ryan movie in the fran- in this series. Right. So I, I, I think it is a number three. Because of Hunt for Red October. Correct, yeah. Would be one. Patriot yeah. Games is two. And then these, and then you get what, Ben Affleck after this, right? You, yeah, you get the Ben Affleck, and then you get the Chris Pine. Yeah, and then you get Pine. And then you get... Uh, Jim from the office. And obviously, um, everything after Affleck, you can just give up on because they suck. I didn't mind the Chris Pine <laughs> one, but I think the Affleck one it's is highly pointless. underrated. I really thought that was a good one. It, yeah, it is a good one. Well, I mean, I didn't like it at the time, but um, it actually is decent compared to everything else I've seen. So <laughs> I remember it uh, comparing unfavorably to the Born Identity, which was at around the same time. You know, and you have that Affleck yeah. Damon uh, connection, but I did think for its own, for what it was, it was a good movie. I, I really did. All right, any closing thoughts on uh, Last Crusade here? Are you glad we went back and watched it? Are you going to rewatch any other I'm stuff? I'm glad we watched it again. Yeah, um, I'm very. I mean, this kind of puts me on Indiana Jones kick a little bit. I kind of want to watch uh, Temple of Doom again. <laughs> me too. I have not. That's probably the one that I've seen the least. It's my favorite one, or not my favorite one. I just listed that as my second favorite one. Ah, fuck, they're all good. What am I supposed to do here? Um, yeah, I just haven't seen it in so long, and it was. It, I guess I would say it's the most shocking one. You know, it's the one that scared me um, the most as a kid. So I definitely want to. See, I know. So I definitely kind of want to revisit that now. I'm um, after having seen this. Um, of course, I've seen this one so much. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Well, I think differently about that one because I haven't seen it. I don't know. It's always weird about rewatching stuff. I'm a little worried, a little hesitant. 
yeah, I was not at all afraid to rewatch this. And then having watched it, I was like, oh, goodness, this is a little bit duller than I imagined it to be. But I owned this on yeah. VHS. This was the first sell-through of the Indiana Jones series. So everybody I knew kind of had this tape, or it was very big at sleepovers. And so we yep. watched this a ton of times. I want to say, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, I had a cousin that had this, and my other cousin, his sister, had Little Mermaid. And she would watch that as much as we would watch this, you know? So I feel like those two movies are very connected to me because um, I, I saw that a ton of times too when I was a kid because of this very thing you know we if we watched Nina Jones we had to put that on next you know said the parents so uh, I just think that <laughs> accessibility to it made it to where it was very fresh in my mind and I think it was a little bit more nostalgic for it than um, than what was on screen but I do love that I just want to give a shout out I do love that action sequence with the horse in the the tank and where he's stuck on the side of the, the rocks. Yeah. I mean, that's a great sequence. That whole thing is... <laughs> how'd, he get, how'd he get off that I gun I don't know. Though? There's a missing so he's, shot. Ra- he's wrapped around the gun <laughs> turret, right? And he's he's wrapped around it, and you're watching, and then all of a sudden, he's not. You're like, well, wait, how the fuck? How'd he just get up? Because he's like, fucking why Indiana that Jones. How that shit happened? Yeah, he climbed out of there. I, I'm not sure exactly how. Uh, or he unsnapped. I, I, there is a missing shot in there somewhere. It happens with older movies. There has to be. But uh, that's not uncommon with older movies for them not to show you things like that and just go like, yeah, because you're only going to see it in the fucking theater. Yeah, it's true. You were never going to watch like, it 40 times. You were going to notice that shit. Yeah. Until we got the VHS. And this was one of the first VHSs that had a widescreen release. Uh, at the time, Spielberg was giving out or making them release two different versions, the pan and scan and the widescreen. I had the pan and scan videotape and then years later I bought the widescreen laser disc so I had that and then obviously the DVDs came out Ooh. after that but this was a beautiful two disc uh, DVD or yeah, DVD laser disc laser disc yeah with the you know beautiful open it is and the artwork's so good and on it was it. like the yeah. book you know you'd open it up and it would have two sides yep. and the chapter yeah, list and a little bit of uh, knowledge in the inside and it was the only time you could really because what they would do back then is they would letterbox when the credits were do you recall this and then the second the credits were done they the letterboxing would go away it would go pan and scan yeah. a lot of movies so you never you know yeah. it was like fuck that's how i want to watch the movie especially that opening sequence in monument valley they had to do that though is that for, for a lot of movies they had to do that well yeah of course you had to do that because you couldn't frame you couldn't frame the sequence correctly and get the uh the titles in there that's why okay that makes sense so they would do that in a lot of fucking movies like that if they could do it then they would just uh they would do it but sometimes they couldn't do it so you get movies like that it's weird I came across something in closing here that cracked me up. It was uh, a guy, it was from some show from England. Somebody posted this online a while back, and it was talking about the top movies of summer of 89 and what was expected to do the box office. And they had Indiana Jones come in at number one, which would have been a, a, a pretty smart bet considering how popular the first two were. Number two being Ghostbusters 2, and number three being Batman. So they really fucked that one up. I mean, <laughs> clearly they didn't. Well, they were going in order of who would outgross who. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense to That's me. That's what they, they, they eventually <laughs> thought. But, uh, it was a chronological order of who's going to out, outgross who. Do you, if you had to put it, Last Crusade up against those two other movies I mentioned. I know Ghostbusters 2. Oh, Batman. Yeah, Batman's oh, Batman. over all three of these two as well. I mean, I Ghostbusters 2 would be last. Agree. Um, I, that's not even that's not even a quest. That's like the easiest lineup I could. <laughs> and like, and I love this fucking movie, but man, I mean Batman, come All on. All day. That Batman movie is re- was ridiculous when we were kids. I it's really uh, it's fair enough to say it's no good today, much like you could say for this movie. Um there's a lot of quirks and weird things in it, but I mean fuck back in the day. Like that that was just I that was unmatched, man. 
well said. I, I can't say it any better. Unmatched, un, unseen hype, and uh, to to come through on that hype as well. And another movie that was available on sell through. So much like Indiana Jones, saw it too many times. I mean, just watched that movie more times than I had any business watching it. I've, <laughs> I've definitely seen Batman more times than I've seen Last Crusade in my life, and I've seen both of them way too many times. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for our show tonight. Thanks for joining us, guys, on this look back at The Last Crusade. As I said before, this is uh, recorded before Dial of Destiny comes out, so I know Trevor and I both are looking forward to catching that as well. Check back with us soon when we take a look back at the third installment in the Mission Impossible franchise. Speaking for Trevor Anderson, I am Jason Rugard, and we are the Movie Mavericks. Oh my, another magnificent episode has come to an end. If you're craving more, set your destination to moviemavericks.com, warp 9. Engage! Engage!